Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Rucker, PhD. He is an organizational psychologist and a behavioral scientist. He is the author of a new book called The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life, and it's out now. Dr. Rucker has a great depth of knowledge on this subject, and I was surprised at how much I loved this book. You are going to really enjoy this interview as he talks about many ways that you can become a healthier, more joyful, and more productive person with small actions. He says, whether you're a frustrated high achiever trying to find a better work-life balance or someone who is seeking relief from life's overwhelming challenges, it is time you gain access to the best medicine available. Fun Habit is the ultimate guide to reap the serious benefits that fun offers. Dr. Rucker is also a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, and he wrote this book after some personal tragedies in his life. All right, let's get to the interview. Hello, Dr. Mike Rucker. Welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Paul, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, and I'm glad to speak to you today about your work and your latest book, The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. So, yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm here for it. You know, it's funny, too, you have the uh, promotional copy. They made me take out the word discipline because apparently that's not fun. <laughs> okay, well, apparently in my edition, you have to be disciplined, but we can strike that well, and from I the record. I still agree. I think we'll get into it. I mean, you know, part of the reason that... Uh, you know, fun becomes difficult as it requires a little bit of discipline, right? As we, we become adults, you know, and that paradoxically kind of seems unfun. So we don't, you know, go that extra step, but it does require a little bit of premeditation um, and being deliberate about it. Uh, you know, I might not to just jump right in, but because uh, I generally don't do that, but to make this novel, um, you know, I think when I studied high achievers that were having the most fun, these were folks that knew they had to put it on their schedule. And I think, you know, we're all living such busy lives and especially trying to re-understand the rhythms of life after the pandemic. Um, we just habituated our behavior so much that so many things are on autopilot, right? And just, you know, taking just a step back and going, wow, I really do want to reintegrate, um, you know, pleasurable experiences because life's worth living. Um and so, you know, I think we're, we're right for that, right? It seems like uh, in the zeitgeist of 2023, people don't want the new year, new you attitude, right? I love this saying now, new year, same you, right? And so, yeah, let's figure it out in, in ways that are practical. I agree completely. I used to have an old boss who said, if it's not on paper, it didn't happen. And so <laughs> I've kind of taken that and said, if it's not in your schedule, it's not going to happen because what's going to happen? If you don't put in intentional things you want to do, is the the modern person who is not at a, let's say, a service industry job, maybe they're in some academic job or a a software job or a um, healthcare job, they'll, they'll just fill it with work and tasks, whether that be personal or professional. That seems to be what I've noticed. Um, that's my, uh, you know, anecdotal ad hoc, you know, analysis. And so... I do think that uh, uh, one has to be disciplined and intentional to put fun on their schedule and uh, also to think about what you have to do to get to the fun. Um, yeah, I think um, y y it's a 
clinical sort of mechanism, but I use it in a pedestrian way that, you know, this idea of a transition ritual, right? And so, you know, in modern work, we that's just been eroded. It used to be we would leave the office and, you know, even at the beginning of sort of the BlackBerry era, we still knew when uh, work was, you know, coming to a conclusion um, and we were a little bit better about how we spent our leisure. Now it's clear, you know, and, and backed by survey data that there's just really no end. And so even if we think we're spending time with friends or spending time with our family, you know, essentially if we're getting notifications on our phone that sort of bring us back into work, then all of that time becomes an extension of work. There's really, you know, it, it's de- certainly not time for renewal. So you might be out at a nice dinner, you know, but if, if you're still sort of, you know, only half there, you know, one foot on the boat, one foot on the pier, everything that the way that I understand it is that conceptually our brain is still working there, you know, there's no spin down because, you know, it's just an extension of of the working hours you had during the day. Yes. And I believe that will lead to a keyword of burnout, but that's not what this podcast is about. So I was going to ask you about your, how do we get, you know, fun and the fun habit. But I think before we get into that, I want to ask you kind of why you decided to write the books. I think that's important. Yeah. So, you know, long story short, my origin story is I have a background in positive psychology. I was a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association when Marty Seglman and Ed Diener and all of them put put that together. I was at the first Congress, you know, in PA. And I really like all of those tools. I'm still an advocate for them. But I slowly over time, you know, from, you know, mid 2000s, when, when, you know, the, the field was really emerging to about 2016 began to really over-optimize my life for happiness. And I really was, was chasing it. And I didn't, you know, I now know that in the rear of the mirror, but I didn't know it then. And in 2016, I had a couple unfortunate events happen to me. One was my younger brother quite suddenly passed away out of the blue. He had a pulmonary embolism. And the other was I, up until that point had been an advocate, excuse me, a, uh, you know, a fan of endurance sport, I essentially was doing triathlons, um, but really loved marathons, really loved running. It was a way that I've always had kind of low level anxiety. And it was the way I mitigated that and found out these two, um, aren't related to each other, but a couple of months after my brother's death found out I had advanced osteoarthritis and couldn't run again. So one, I was sort of introduced to intimate loss. Right. And then the other was this identity that had carried me for quite some time was essentially taken away from me. And so, you know, but I was this hopeless optimist and all of these, you know, rah, rah, sort of, you know, good vibes only had served me so well up until that point. And so I was trying to will myself out of this despair when, you know, again, with the benefit of hindsight, I really should have created the psychological space to mourn my brother's death. I meant, you know, mourning was an appropriate emotional response for that time, not trying to be happy. And yet I was like, you know, I can get over this. I'm at this sucks, right? But I'll get myself back to happy. And around the same time, emerging research was coming out. I, I often reference Dr. Iris Mouse, but it, it, her work's been replicated that, especially here in the West, this, you know, ideal of happiness. So not necessarily valuing happiness, but being overly concerned about optimizing your life for happiness or, you know, what's now termed toxic positivity really is almost a direct path 
it's certainly a direct path to poor mental hygiene. And it has a strong correlation now to even, you know, negative clinical outcomes with psychology. I mean, you know, a high correlation to anxiety disorders and, and clinical depression. And so at least I was aware enough to understand that something very wrong was happening. Right. And again, lucky enough that there was some research to suggest like, oh boy, I, I'm, you know, my own worst enemy here. So if these tools of positive psychology weren't necessarily appropriate for that period of my life, I mean, what could I do? <laughs> was it, you know, it's, you're kind of left hanging, right? Okay. So, um, you know, again, like any good academic, I started going into the research and I already had a background uh, in self-determination theory because of my work in workplace wellness as an academic. And so I really latched onto this idea of autonomy. Like, okay, if autonomy is such a strong indicator of workplace well-being, what about flexing it, you know, within your own life? And so I realized quite quickly, like I have a lot more power, agency and autonomy over how I feel in any given moment than I had led myself to believe. So I didn't necessarily need to optimize for an emotional state, but I could go out and quote unquote, have fun. Right. And so that's essentially what I started doing. And, um, you know, just luckily kind of, as I was investigating this phenomena, emerging research more so in social psychology than clinical psychology started to back up these ideas, right. That again, if you're mindful about where your two feet are, and you use your agency and autonomy to sort of put yourself in situations that you know are going to be enjoyable. Ultimately, you start to index enjoyable things over time. And then you also start to foster, you know, what Carl Dweck calls a growth mindset, right? You realize that you have more control over your domain than you thought. And so both of those are additive, right? One, you're starting to index more joyful memories. So you, you're starting to see that, yes, the world is abundant of really crappy stuff, but you can also put your attention on the fact the world's abundant and really, you know, amazing stuff, stuff that lights you up. And also that you have control, that things aren't happening to you. You know, ultimately we can't control everything that happens to us, but we can stack the deck in our favor for joyful experiences. And then once you start to get on there, you know, you start to pull yourself out because it's like, okay, yeah, life sucks sometimes, but certainly life is really good a lot of the time, especially, you know, if I, if I'm a creator in, you know, w with regards to my own personal experience. Yeah. I, I think that is a, a wise perspective and it sounds like some of this came from your own research, but also your own experience and some of the things you were learning, because there are pl plenty of factors we can't control and we can do, we can pick any cause or causes and work on those causes. But one thing we can control more is setting up our experiences, what we want to do with our time outside of work or even within work. Yep. And so that's something we can control it gives us more agency. And if we have agency, the world can appear less scary, or maybe we are getting less scary situations on purpose, um, or whatever, whatever is, is bothering us. And so that, that's something I, you see clinically being utilized, but, um, having fun and setting up fun peak experiences is a new thing. And I want to make sure we get into that. But before we get into that, I think it's good that you told us kind of why you, why you wrote the book, what led up to the book, but there's, um, I think we got to go negative first before we go positive. So I was reading in your book about how the United States has the least paid vacation time in the world. And yet, even within that, uh, people aren't even taking 
vacation. They're not even taking time off uh, very low percentages uh, of people and they have lots of time left over. Um, what are some cultural, there's a couple questions I have with this, but the cultural factors, what, what cultural factors do you believe are contributing to this phenomenon? Yeah, I think, you know, we've kind of, in a weird way, sort of mutated this idea of the pursuit of happiness, right? That was in the mm-hmm. constitution. I think, you know, a lot of it's rooted in the Puritan work ethic. There's multiple headwinds. So whenever I kind of give this spiel, you know, I think some are going to resonate with some folks and, and, and some might not, but um, I kind of equate, you know, similar to the obesity of epidemic, right? Is it smaller plate sizes? Is it, you know, urban design? There's so many different things. Um, and, uh, you know, it's similar here. There's so many different things that are happening. Um, and so I think, you know, it's just really rooted in this, you know, hustle culture that we have, right? Like, you know, productivity has been celebrated for so long, you know, somewhat um, socially normalized by, you know, folks that are really ex- trying to extrapolate value from us. And so, you know, whether it's that's what you've been brought up and there's some spiritual underpinnings to that, whether it's, you know, the fact that we live in a meritocracy, especially here in the U.S. And so, you know, the the fruits of labor are really the only end goal and that's how you're ultimately evaluated. This becomes really problematic. And so those are the underpinnings, right? When I mean, we've been socially conditioned to believe that achievement in some way is going to make us happy and ultimately, you know, some people wait until, you know, that golden uh, uh, wristwatch and all of a sudden go, holy cow, I just, you know, essentially gave 30 years of my life to someone else, right? I mean, this has been brought up by a lot of people, but I think the most popular person is Bronnie Ware, you know, who has surveyed folks, you know, later in life and asked them, what do they regret? And essentially what we know is that folks that haven't lived, you know, made a, a kind of nice mosaic or tapestry, as you will, of life experiences and have sort of habituated their life and potentially given away a lot of their time so that someone else can get wealthy, really regret things. And so I think it's just an unfortunate sort of, you know, mechanism of of the U.S. culture. Um, And so to your point, uh, you know, the data I have in the book, I think it's from 2020, but, uh, you know, there was a popular post just on LinkedIn, uh, you know, that reestablished that, yeah, we're second to last. I don't think we're last. We're second to last at 10 days uh, per uh, year worked. I think there's um, one other developed country that's below us at at nine days. Um, But what's even more problematic is even though we're at the bottom of the totem in that regard, 50% of people don't take any vacation throughout the year, right? And so that's what has also become a little bit problematic is that people will scoff because that seems pretty pedestrian, right? Like, okay, yay, I'm not taking vacations, who cares? But to your point, I mean, we now know that that's directly correlated to an immense amount of burnout that folks have. And so in the book, I feel like I make a pretty good case that this becomes insidious because it's very slow, right? You don't realize it's happening to you. You know, slowly but surely, you're just working more and more. Again, you know, the headwinds are, it could be because you're doing it from a sense of duty. It could be what we call in psychology, the U-shaped curve of happiness, which is, you know, fairly new to this era. You know, we're having kids later in life and we're living longer. So a lot of folks, 
you know, are in a situation, especially between the ages of 35 and 50, where for the first time really in history, you're taking care of kids and taking care of ailing parents. So you have a sense of duty to, um, you know, care for two sets of folks when that historically hasn't happened. Right. And then also, um, you know, because of just socioeconomic reasons, you're now having, uh, you know, in domestic relationships, both partners having to work, right. That's fairly new. So, and then you you add on the fact that uh, smart technology has allowed us to be accessible 24-7. And all of a sudden, you know, yeah, okay, I'm just kind of always doing this, right? And what we're now seeing are the dire consequences of this. And so often what I like to bring up is in the 90s, we used sleep deprivation as a badge of honor. I don't know if you remember, but like, you know, the Gary V's of the world and the Grant Cardone's like, Hey, you know, if you really want to be successful, what you do is you stop watching your favorite shows. And when the kids go to bed, you work till 2 a.m. And then you get up, you know, you you get up early and you, you rinse and repeat. And we now know how asinine that is, right? Even the most staunch folks that are, you know, still living the, the hustle life, as it were, know that you need to sleep seven hours a day, or you won't, you'll, you know, eventually within six months not be able to be productive at all. And I think what we're finding now, we're at the forefront of realizing that the same goes with leisure, right? And we're so behind. I mean, it's so amazing what you're seeing coming out of the EU. You know, uh, I, I think France was the first one, but folks are following suit. Um, they're shutting down the email server at 5 p.m. on Fridays so that, you know, just as a cultural norm, you can't send work emails on the weekend. If you said that here, in fact, Ariana Huffington tried, like I read about this in the book, um, but I think it's amazing. She tried to create an app that essentially, if you were on PTO, all the incoming email would get an autoresponder that said, I'm on PTO, so I'm not going to see any of these emails. In fact, they're going to get deleted, so I don't have a mountain of email when I get back. If it's important, please email me when I get back on such and such a date. You can't find that app anymore. And I think that's very telling of, you know, where we're at today. So, you know, it's interesting for me because I've been living these ideas for quite some time. I think, you know, why aren't we just doing this, right? I'm sure someone like Ariana Huffington that's kind of had the same spiel for a while, you know, thinks in the same way. But for a lot of people, these really seem like radical ideas, right? Like I, I can't find two to three hours in my week. Really? You can't? Because, you know, that's another thing I mentioned in the book. Like when you peel back these time surveys, even, you know, uh, female domestic partners and heterosexual relationships, which tend to be the ones that have, you know, both work and domestic duties that can really, you know, make you quote unquote time poor. That's the word we use in, in academic literature. Even those folks generally can find two hours a day, right, that they can reclaim for themselves, but they're so burnt out that they they just, they instead want to sort of be distracted. And that's, you know, again, where social media usage, you know, just, uh, you know, poor uses of leisure can come in that aren't renewing, right? So, you, you know, you start the next day just depleted and it becomes, you know, this downward spiral, which is really unfortunate on that same sort of LinkedIn post, they cited data from the American Psychological Association that says one out of every four workers is so burnt out, they don't even know what to do. Like, you know, they have no capacity to do anything outside of work. I mean, that is I mean, profound, right? And then we just say that as a casual statistic, like, oh, that sucks. Like, no, that's that's a huge red flag. And especially when it's only us, right? 
Oh yes, I agree completely. I've um I was thinking about a few things when you were talking about that. Uh I've got some quotes I want to say first, and I'll get into some of the what I may be driving economically. Like you said, it's multiple headwinds. I like that phrase. But uh, I don't remember who said this, but uh, this is something that stuck with me is time is the one thing you can't get more of. And uh, somebody and I kind of use that with my clients. I say, you can always get more money if you want to just sell your time. You could drive Uber, pick up groceries for people, walk people's dogs, uh, do all these extra things with your, you know, work on getting a promotion, all these different things. But time is the one thing you can't get more of. So think about how you want to use your precious time. And then another quote i heard um i got to i i was privileged enough to see james hillman before he died speak in california and he was talking about how people always came to him to help them with their soul but he said he would be scared of their reaction when he tried to treat their schedules because <laughs> the joke is of course that their schedule was ruining their soul you know? yep. and uh then the something i heard today actually i um I'm uh, where I'm living right now um, in this season. Uh, I I can walk to Trader Joe's, which is a, a, my one of my favorite grocery stores. And I was on a phone call, of course, for work. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't a very important. It was it wasn't a very pivotal call. Otherwise, I would have been on Zoom. It was just a kind of a check in about something that was going on at work. And so I was like, well, this is my little break in the day. I'll do this. I'll walk for half an hour, you know, 10 minute walk to Trader Joe's and then I'll, I'll walk back and uh, have a break. Um, and I was in Trader Joe's after the phone call was done and I heard these workers and they were, you know, there were two guys just working and, and throwing stuff on the produce and they were talking about how they needed to make more money and how they were looking at different jobs. And the one guy's like, yeah, man, you got to be hungry. You got to hustle. Got to be hungry, man. And I'm thinking, oh, that metaphor, you got to be hungry. So like I have to pretend because uh, both of them, you know, Trader Joe's is not a terrible place to work, but I'm assuming sure. they both need more money. But I got to be hungry, which means I, I got to almost invoke the metaphor that I'm starving so that I can get more opportunities or more work or more money. And I, I thought about that and it reminded me of uh, 2008 when we had this mortgage catastrophe situation. And when the mortgage thing happened, I remember this distinctly because I had just gotten a smart, wait, and no, I didn't even have a smartphone. Sorry. It was before I got my first smartphone. It was 2012 when I got my first smartphone. But Wow, you were a holdout. <laughs> I was a hold. I was a holdout. I was a Luddite. It was what I was trying to do because I easily am addicted to these smartphones. Let's be real. It's a dopamine rush. It's very fun. Um, but <laughs> in 2008, I remember this happened. And then I remember listening to a bunch of um, NPR money episodes and other things like that. And they were talking about after 2008, from about 2008 to 2011, um, productivity rose significantly in American workers and wages either went down or stagnated because all the companies were crying about the mortgage crisis and all of this money. And yet they were trying to get, they were management was focusing on getting people to work more. And now we find ourselves. And I remember thinking to myself very distinctly at this time, and especially when I got the sm smartphone, I thought the world is speeding up. I feel like things are speeding up. And I don't know if that's just time or my perception, but I, I felt like more was demanded of me at that time versus um, when I was in the first 11 years of, the 2000s when I was working different jobs. So that was my personal kind of anecdote on that. But 
not to go all into the economic factors, but just briefly, maybe you can give us some references of what we can read later, but what economic factors do you think are leading to some of this um, this hustle culture, this sort of got to be hungry? Yeah, these are just theories and they're pretty fresh. So, uh, you know, I think certainly you can follow the parody that's happening, right? And people are becoming really aware of it. And I think especially... You know, Gen Xers were so primed, again, kind of, you know, immersed themselves in hustle culture. And I think it's harder to walk back. But the great resignation, I think, is sort of this collective awareness that so many people are giving away value so that other people can get rich and they're kind of getting sick of it. Right. And so there's this course correction that you're seeing, but I think there are powerful forces at play, right? Not to get too existential with it. And I think there's going to be sort of a reckoning, right? Because you saw, you know, like how dare these people feel emboldened. And I think, you know, it gets coupled with the woke movement that's completely separate from folks just wanting, you know, to feel that their worth is being appropriately valued to, you know, social causes that have really no bearing in that. And so I think, you know, people are just kind of waking up. Um, there's a lot of research to suggest that the folks that are wise to the fact that, to your point, time is probably more a valuable resource than money. Um, I think a big awakening for me, not to get too matrixy, because I'm not, you know, I'm not in the Elon camp where I think we're a computer simulation, but I certainly think that, you know, again, why I referenced the book Sapiens is that once you realize like government was essentially a creative endeavor by people, right? I mean, government wouldn't exist unless we essentially created these doctrines. Money is the same way, right? Money was essentially created out of nothing so that we would have, you know, these mechanisms to, um, uh, you know, exchange goods and services, right? Like once you realize that these are kind of contrived, then you can understand that people that it's essentially a game, right? Like people are creating these businesses, which essentially are creative contrived mechanisms. And the people that are controlling them want to make as much money because that's the game we play here in the US, right? And so if you know that, then great, find a good leader, right? That That's going to allow you to have a good life and also essentially reward you for your hard work. Um, but I think so many people are kind of blind to that, right? It's like, no, I just need to find a job. And again, I always understand, yes, this comes somewhat from a place of privilege, right? There are a lot of people that, you know, if they're just starting out, they they do need to take the job that they can get because, you know, ultimately, if you're at the bottom of Maslow's Triangle and you need to feed your kids, then go, you know, and you only have one opportunity, take that opportunity. But I think, I mean, you know, you're seeing record low unemployment. There, there's a lot of opportunity for mobility. And I, you know, especially the younger generation, as much criticism as they get, I think it's inspiring that they're like, you know what? You know, like I I kind of enjoy Twitter's collapse right now. You know, I mean, it's such a toxic environment that's publicly being played out, you know, where people are like, I don't want to sleep on the floor, you know, so I'm gonna bounce. And so I think, you know. Again, when we talk about these constructs of time and money, I, I think you're seeing this awakening that time needs to be valued at least on the same playing field as money, because money is essentially just a tool to be able to do the things that you want. It's clear that once you are at a you know a certain strata, 
I think for families, it's $150,000, but don't quote me on that $150,000, that more money doesn't really contribute to a better life. And so if that's the case, if you kind of make it to that, you know, to that bar, then you need to start thinking about other things. Yet we've just, you know, we live in a capitalist meritocracy, right? And so always wanting more, we become unsatiated, you know, if we are not mindful about where the bar is. So, you know, one of the big, bigger macro concepts in the book is like, what do you really want? And then once you design towards that, be really grateful that you arrived and don't necessarily move the goalpost on yourself. And you see that people that are really good at this are some of the most happy in the world. That is great. Yes. Um, Time is money is one of my old economics professors used to say (laughs) to me, and I didn't understand what he was talking about because I was 18, but I eventually (laughs) kind of did. Um, and and I won't. I'm going to make sure we jump into the fun part of the book. Um, no but you did reference the book Nickled and Dimed on Not Getting By in America by Barbara. Can't remember her last name. Barbara E. We'll just call her that. You did talk about the gig economy, um, and and I do like uh, I do like how the young people are deconstructing the model. I do think. Uh, let's just say here example. My grandfather worked for GM for 50 years. He had a lot of money and a house and multiple cars. Okay. That he was rewarded for his hard work. And that was, he retired in the 80s, I believe, um, and or 90s, whatever. The point was there's been shifts in 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 a corporate and 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 business world where in, in different times of time periods and in different locations and in different ownerships, workers were rewarded better. And they could buy more with their money and their t- uh, buy more with their time. They could buy college, they could afford a whole house. Um, and then I won't go into this, but you can read what happened in the eighties as this started to get stripped away to the point where now people are working two jobs with kids and can barely afford a home, which is a whole nother topic of, of a podcast. So, no, but um, I think it plays into the original thesis where we need, you know, there is this reckoning, right. And who knows where we're heading. And to your point, we could really get off the rails, but you know, I'm in the same boat. My parents got a pension and they are both public uh, they're both professors at a public university. And so that's a good life, right? I mean, there's not, you know, especially if you can live mindfully and sort of understand, and and they were both fairly good at that. My dad's a musician, so that's where where he finds his fun. Um, There's not much else that's needed because you're taken care of, right? Again, you get to that. But so many of those things have been deconstructed because so many people on the you know, the higher echelon are trying to take more and more off the table for themselves. How we saw that again is outside, right? At least my sphere of influence. But I think it's important because there are opportunities, right? You might need to be mindful of them and go out and find them. And it might not be this year, right? It might be deliberate design, you sort of steering the ship in the right direction. But as you're thinking about what you want to do professionally, certainly try and find companies that are going to value you know, your contribution in a way that that makes sense to you. And then also that allows you to have boundaries because they understand that giving you a life outside of work is just as important as what you're doing on the job. I agree completely. I mean, that's something I'm trying to implement in my own business um, about how we treat people and give them a lot of vacation time and PTO and, and, uh, sick time and different things like that, but also encouraging them to take breaks and we pay for half of their lunch. We pay, we obviously have to give them a half hour, uh, break according to state laws, but I, I, we also pay them to take another half an hour off. 
And we advocate that they take that half an hour to do something relaxing, um, investing in people's, um, pursuits, continuing education, learning how to be better. I mean, I think that's the new paradigm that's going to have to happen or else you, every Starbucks and Chipotle will be unionized and they will have to pay the other way. So, um, that getting into that. So let's, let's jump into, uh, the fact is there's all these difficult things in the world, all these difficult factors, but if you're advocating bringing more fun into our lives, not necessarily pursuing pleasure, success, and happiness, whatever those mean. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your the human brain and some of the ways that you had um, thought about it. Yeah, um, and so I've really leaned on neuroscientists for this because that's certainly not my background. But I think one of the interesting things, especially in you know prior quote-unquote happiness books, is that we've thought of this idea of dopamine being a a pleasure neurochemical, right? And so we've learned a lot in the last decade and there's a new narrative that dopamine is, was, is really there to help excite us, right? So that's a, that's an interesting, pleasurable feeling, but why it becomes, why it's important to know that is that it really gets triggered when we anticipate something. And so whatever that thing is doesn't really matter to our brain. And that's why there's so many things that can ultimately hijack it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily villainize smartphones. I think these are interesting tools. I know some out there, you know, completely, uh, you know, say that they're the villain, but I do think we need to understand that a lot of these products have been designed to capture our attention, right? The reason they call, um, you know, it, the attention economy is because that's essentially what's being sold to advertisers. Right. And so understanding that these things sort of satiate us in a way that's sort of what saccharine sweet is the, is the metaphor I use because Mm -hmm. it's not really filling us up. Right. Like ultimately the litmus test that I use, um, with folks is, you know, I ask you, uh, you know, two weeks later, can you tell me in that hour that you spent on Instagram, like, a couple interesting things that, uh, you know, that are going to kind of be cemented in your memory and nine times out of 10, they can't, you know, there's some people that use it as a really useful tool. It's like, you know, I used it to, uh, essentially relive a wedding that I wasn't able to attend. Like, great. That's a great use of social media. But if you're just looking at silly little memes because you're bored and you know, you're waiting to go to sleep, like that needs a course correction. And so the, that, when dopamine is kind of tricking us into feeling like, you know, that we are enjoying ourselves, that becomes problematic. And so again, these are kind of metaphorical the the neuroscience is a little bit more complex than, and I admit that in the book, but it's clear that real connection. So whether that's to something, you know, something that you enjoy, um, it certainly, uh, applies to connections with folks that you love or, you know, or, or friendships, it could be a connection to spirituality or nature, you know, if that's your slant, but feeling connected to the things, you know, or people that we're engaging with becomes really important. And it's likely correlates with why there's such a high level of loneliness right now here in the U S because we're doing things that don't lead to real connection, right? We think they are like, because we're getting these artificial likes, these, you know, essentially contrived signals of, of connection. And then you look at them and you're like, I don't know 80% of these people yet. I, I felt like that was some sort of, you know, extrinsic reward for, you know, posting my curated life. 
Yeah, and I also we, there was something you wrote in here about dopamine could also like too much dopamine and then going down could lead to more anxiety and depression. And then also on page 14, I like this part. Oxytocin release appears to be more than merely pleasurable. Research suggests that it protects us from our own negative impulses. When Dr. Volker Ott at the University of Lübeck in Germany and his colleagues gave a group of 20 healthy men oxytocin, their self-restraint increased and their snack consumption decreased, leading the researchers to conclude that oxytocin can have a significant effect on controlling reward-related behavior. We need to prioritize activities that enrich us with oxytocin, satisfying our need for fun, um, we're better equipped to move beyond our instant gratification and make better choices about how to invest our time and attention. And that is so interesting. I, yeah. I, I just go ahead. Yeah. No, I meant there were a host of, of different studies um, that could have been brought forth. Again, that one, you know, has a small sample size, but it's still important. There was just an immense amount of, thematic analysis that suggests, and again, I validated this with like Lisa Feldman Barrett and some of the neuroscientists that um, I interviewed for the book. And that is that when we feel connected, one, we know, you know, or we strongly believe that empathy is increased, right? And whether you call it willpower or ego depletion or whatever, when we have those strong social ties, then we don't look for unhealthy ways of escapism, whether that's eating more or, you know, uh, engaging in risky behavior, et cetera, et cetera. So it's clear that, you know, whether that's a direct result of oxytocin, again, you know, like that study suggests, you know, I, I think we're onto something and that's what I allude to in the book. What is clear when you look at it, you know, at a macro level is that when we're doing things that are kind of me activities, so solely, you know, scrolling social media, um, versus things that I call we activities where we're connecting to something where we feel a little bit smaller, but we feel like we're part of a, a bigger thing. Those that just seems to be so much more enriching. And again, that's why I think that science is really interesting. Right. And why, why I brought it forth in the book, like there's just a whole host of studies to suggest that when we are connecting, you know, with whatever connecting means to us, that again, we have more resilience, more empathy, and we don't need to do things to distract ourselves from the mundane. I love that. So leading into the science, let's go into a little bit of your simple theory of fun. Um, <laughs> you had some points in here. Um, this is your kind of way of explaining it. And I, I really liked it. So bias towards action, pro-social, autonomous, and extraordinary. Do you mind, you know, talking about that for a minute? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the big piece of that is just the action bias, right? And so, again, autonomy, we talked about why that's so important. I, but I think, you know, I, I stole this idea from a friend, but uh, the mental frame that we get to do things versus we have to do things, you know, it's a subtle shift. And again, you know, it's a little bit sort of, yeah, okay, you know, this is just a, a reframe, but that fact that we can use our agency in an action-oriented way. So, you know, the reason that I explain it in these terms is that where happiness really becomes problematic is it's essentially an, an exercise in evaluation, right? You have to take yourself out of the moment and go, am I happy, right? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's clear that there's, um, 
reasons why that be- can become problematic. I mean, I think if you're using it to sort of guide yourself to the future, you know, that's great. But so many of us just uh, perseverate on that, those kind of ideas. Where fun, again, you know, since this has this action orientation, like if you say, I want to go off and have fun, generally you're you're following your feet, right? I mean, you're you're going to go and engage in that activity. And so that's really where I like to classify it. And then, you know, my kind of uh, academic definition of it is, you know, anything that you really just enjoy. And so through that context, it kind of becomes bullying, right? Like, am I enjoying what I'm doing? You know, even if it's something hard, or is this something that's really so depleting that over time, if I continue to do it, you know, it's going to grind me down to a nub. Yes. Um, I love that. And there, it reminded me of this activity I do with teenagers and now adults in my therapy practice, where it's called the functional analysis of pro-social behavior. And essentially what we do is we go through something they used to do that they liked, but they stopped doing it for some reason. Maybe they had a big event, a negative event in their life or a trauma or some shift in location. And essentially we go through this whole thing about, you know, what is the behavior? What are the triggers? What are the positives? What are the, and then we get to the fun part, which is short-term negative consequences of engaging in the pro-social behavior and long-term positive. And and everyone always looks at me like, what are you talking about? Short-term negative. This is fun. I like soccer. Soccer is <laughs> fun. I love playing soccer. Well, why aren't you going? Well, there we go. We fill it out point by point. It love takes it. time to get ready. I have to block schedule. I get sweaty. I have to take a shower afterwards. I have to be organized. I have to tell my partner that I'm going to be at soccer on Thursday night. All these negatives that are difficult to get the car going, to get back into this action-oriented fun where you lose time. You forget what time it is. You love it. You're with your friends. You're playing. Even if you're not good at it, it's a a good release. Uh, And and then long-term positive, we fill out like all these different categories about like on your social life, your personal... um, your personal feelings, your happiness scale, your, and then it's funny, I always put in there job or school. And they're like, what do you mean? How do, what do you mean positive in job or school? I go, well, go, what was life in your job or school like when you were going to soccer every Thursday? Well, actually I had more energy on Fridays and I looked forward to Thursdays and okay. So, so it's that whole thing. That latter one is one I've been having a lot of fun with as well. Like I think, you know, especially for, uh, you know, these folks that are so burnt out, you know, again, that stat that we uh, uh, brought forth from the APA, like, and I'm, it sounds like you find this in your own practice, the momentum that it takes, you know, it's generally like two or three weeks, but once folks become mindful, like, holy cow, I came, you know, I thought this was going to be a burden, but I came out a Thursday and Friday, which is so much better. You know, it does, it, be, it becomes a quick sell. But that first one, right, it's so difficult. And especially, like, I, I, you know, maybe you're better equipped to, to answer this, you know, because I'm not, I'm an organizational psychologist, not a clinical psychologist, but the the resistance I see after that first week, like, essentially making stuff up, where they're almost doing it with a smile, because they know they had so much fun, but, like, you know, getting back, you know, week two and week three, it becomes easy, but that first week, like, some of the excuses you hear, like, yeah, because I think you are tired, right? One, you're adjusting, you know, especially if it's something physical, because for whatever reason, you know, for a lot of the folks that I work with, it's it's dancing. That just seems to be a really common thing for both men and women. But um, the, you know, the idea of going to dance class on a quote unquote school night, like that, you know, 
to do that initially, just, you know, it's such a heavy lift, but then, you know, by week two, like, holy cow, I just did feel better. I was such a better version of myself the next day. It sounds like you, you know, again, anecdotally are finding the same thing. Right. But like, I assume that the, uh, um, that the, uh, first sort of entry, you know, you, you see some resistance that just doesn't even make sense. You know? Well, and I, I, I equate it to exercise science. So if you start or, or even, uh, social science after COVID people going out and doing things in public, their brain wasn't used to it. Yeah. And so it was scary for some people. We had a lot of social phobias post COVID, um, and then with exercise science, your muscles don't like it. You're yes. making me do what? But after yeah, two or three weeks, yeah. right, specificity. After a few weeks, your muscles are going, why aren't you exercising, <laughs> right? And and so I actually used to have a yoga teacher that said, um, every time we get there to class and we're about to start, he'd say, congratulations, the hardest part is over. You made it to class and you have your mat in front of you. Everything else after this is going to be Maybe difficult in the moment, but you're going to get through it, and you're here. So, I love that. Um, Have you seen? Go ahead. Not to go off on a quick, but uh, so this I got introduced to his work after the book, so it's not in the fun habit. But I I really like the these ideas come from uh, Ryan Hamilton out of Emory University. That you know this idea of separating system one and system two rewards, and for folks that you know aren't familiar with that system one are really, really pleasurable things in the moment. They're fairly accessible. And, you know, two, uh, system two requires some cognitive load. I meant, you know, so we can think about like, oh yeah, you know, if, if I run for 10 weeks, I'm going to feel fitter and be, but that still isn't like instantly gratifying. Right. And so when you do create these habits, like how do you integrate, you know, what I would call fun, what Ryan would call system one, you know, so that, you're kind of tiptoeing into this new routine. And I, I really like the, you know, that breakout because then you can be mindful of both, right? Okay. So yeah, all of these things aren't fun. How could we make it fun? Like, do you, you know, have your favorite podcast? Like, why don't we play it on the way there so that, um, you know, I'm essentially an extension of habit bundling, right? Like, um, and so I think, you know, this work comes from um, Caitlin Woolley out of Cornell, but you're seeing like when, so many of the things that we do, we're sort of doing as martyrs, right? And so, you know, I'm not necessarily saying let's make everything fun, but I think that we've gone so far the other way that, again, it almost needs this, you know, sort of radical reintervention so that at least some of the time we're enjoying ourselves. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. Um, I, I The one thing I really loved about this book was not only did you have the academic literature kind of summarized quickly, there are references in the back to everything you talk about, whether it be a, a writer or a journal article or something like that, which is cool. There's also self-reflection and calls to action in this book where you can give people assignments. I, I thought that was fun. <laughs> and I, I do love these little um, pictures that are in here. Um, oh, and, 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 and for instance, the play model um, about how the play model is you had these four quadrants and uh, and there was the easy to hard part. So easy would be like low fun and easy is yielding to like TV or social media. It's kind of the illustration you're putting. Yeah, no fun yeah. and easy to do. Yeah, right. And then no fun and hard is like agonizing over paperwork and menial tasks. And then high fun and easy would be kind of like walking a dog or something like that. And then living, uh, you wrote living, 
like really living a hard challenge, high fun. You, you have a guy surfing or a person <laughs> surfing in this, uh, you know, that takes, obviously it takes some skill and takes some planning to get there. And, um, I love, you know, the idea of bringing play back into society. Cause I definitely don't know where this came from, but I always had a hard time letting loose and having fun and playing, um, growing up. And I don't know why that was, I was always a little serious and I'm now embracing it as much as possible and doing lots of fun things, even though I can feel myself fighting against it. Like I should be working or something. Um, but I love that model. If you wanted to talk a little bit about that model, and then I want to ask you about agonizing, but if you can talk a little bit about the play model that you yeah, suggest. absolutely. Well, thanks for, you did a great job kind of summarizing it. Essentially like any good organizational psychologist, I need to come up with a four quadrant model, right. To feel like, I, um, but I think where people have really levitated towards it is you being mindful of how you spend your time um, really is a, an important step, right? I think, you know, to live um, in a deliberate way, you really need to first understand your rhythms, your, you know, habits and things of that nature. And oftentimes when those are illuminated, you're like, oh my goodness, right? I think, you know, that's why you're seeing uh, smartphones like Androids and iPhones kind of being forced to do that. I mean, you know, if you want a place to start, just, you know, look at your the health readout in your smartphone. And I think you'll be quite amazed again, you know, the average right now is three hours per day. And, you know, when you hear that, you're like, no way. And then you look on your phone and you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> it even so, lists what apps you use too. And yeah, how long. exactly. Anyway, That's right. Yeah, keep going. Um, I know Cran I, I saw how long I was on candy crush and I just deleted it. I'm like, this is absurd. <laughs> you know? Um, and so the, you know, again, the play model is, it's essentially just a really easy way to take the 168 hours in your week and sort of organize it in a fashion so that you can identify this low hanging fruit. Right. And so, you know, was this something that I really enjoyed like playing with my dog? Is this something that, um, you know, was lighting me up, like was fun or, you know, that's kind of a bad example, but essentially like looking at from activity to activity, I think one of the biggest uh, culprits can be work, right? Like was, did you really need to spend two hours on email or was that admin work, you know, kind of so that you could just make yourself feel busy at night. Um, and so, you know, having a model like that to be able to put each one of your activities, you know, within the, within your work or excuse me, within your week um, allows you to be like, okay, wow. I didn't realize that so much of my uh, weekly and, and time routine is in the unpleasant two, uh, quadrants. And so it can be an awakening tool, right? Like, okay, I, I need to figure this out. Um, so th that's where it becomes helpful. I, I hope that answered your question. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, self-reflection is big and I think it is naturally a time when people self-reflect, but I think one of the hardest self-reflections is how, what is the reality of how I spend my time? Um, yeah, I wanted to ask about agonizing. I, I love this. I've never, I mean, there's so many topics we've already actually already covered that I was going to ask you, but this idea of make life, make life less agonizing. And you talk about some of these agonizing uh, activities, well, in our opinion, which is, you know, this whole doom surfing news around the clock. Um, and anyway, could you, could you comment on that? What are you yeah, trying to do here? I think, the, you know, so again, certainly not advocating that there aren't going to be hard things that you don't enjoy doing. I think that's just, a, you know, anyone that's living a meaningful life is going to have those things in their life. They're going to, 
there are going to be struggles and there's also going to be components of just, you know, employment that aren't necessarily pleasurable. And so I'm not saying that we can engineer all those out. What I am saying is that there's a lot of times that you're doing things that with just a little bit of curiosity and creativity by approaching them, that you can make them a lot more pleasurable. And so an example that seems to be hitting home with a lot of folks is, uh, you know, in the book, I talk about uh, my wife and I just really stopped enjoying giving our kids baths, like as intimate as that sounds, they didn't enjoy the activity. And so they would fight us tooth and nail. Um, you know, it's always like this chaotic mess. It got to the point that we would wait it out to see which one was going to be a martyr because, you know, again, they would use it as an opportunity not to go to sleep. And like the whole ritual is just exhausting. And so we couldn't afford a nanny. We weren't, you know, we weren't making that kind of money. And we were trying to figure out like, how are we just going to solve this problem? Because it was an agonizing activity for both of us. And so at first we're like, well, we can't bring in a babysitter just to, you know, just to do this one thing for us. And then again, you know, kind of eating my own dog food, I was like, absolutely we can. And so for a small amount of money, we brought in this babysitter that was really fun in her own right. And she essentially started doing that for us like four, yeah, three times a week. And so that allowed my wife and I to, you know, we extended the time a little bit. Um, so we were able to go out to dinner those nights. And so for just a few dollars, right, we were able to now have these opportunities for connection. And the kids were now not fighting with Caitlin because she was super fun and they really enjoyed the experience. And then there was this added benefit that after, you know, the, the routine had kind of gotten broken up we were able to steal some of the things that Caitlin was doing to be able to, to make it more fun. Right. And so, you know, again, kind of a pedestrian example, but I use it to highlight, like, you know, if there are things in your life that are, have kind of gotten to that point, they're easy to change. If you kind of approach them again, you know, in a way, like, how can I make this particular situation better? You know, for some things it could be just tacking something on, right? Like if you don't like, cleaning your house, for instance, like maybe you pair that with your favorite podcast or your favorite music. Um, you know, if you hate a weekly meeting because it's just become so routine and you hate the space that you're in, maybe it's as simple as taking that meeting outside the office and doing it, you know, in a different environment, like a coffee shop or, or, you know, taking on the road as a walking meeting, whatever it is. Again, the situation is so unique. It's hard to prescribe something, but I think once I bring up examples you know, like, oh my goodness, I do hate this one thing. And maybe if I, you know, kind of looked at it as an anthropologist, like, wait, what are the things here that do make it kind of horrible? Cause I've never gotten outside of my own head and how can I reinvent this in a way? So it is more pleasurable and hopefully, you know, in a way that makes it actually more fun, that becomes a useful exercise. I, I love that activity and, and kind of the way I was also looking at it and throughout the book, you kind of give a lot of examples is that, you know, you can, you can start deconstructing if you have time to sit with your thoughts and sit with your calendar and sit with somebody who will listen to you and start thinking about, you know, like you said, low-hanging fruit. Um, I hate deep cleaning. <laughs> I hate it with a passion, probably because of my upbringing when I was <laughs> when I was a child. I my parents owned a motel, and so I had to. Clean. Oh my goodness! Yeah, Yikes. it was fun. Yeah, so <laughs> that's a whole other topic. But uh, essentially, I, I I now hire somebody to come in once a month. Um, I clean, we clean and we, and we usually pair it with music or something, but to deep clean, I hire somebody to come in once a month and I would not trade that money 
for anything. And so what are ways to optimize? And it's not even that much money for once a month. Um, what are ways to optimize? And you always hear people saying, I need to save money. I need to save money. And and oftentimes people I hear saying this have lots of money yeah, and yet they don't use it on making their life better. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think, you know, it's interesting because it, it's almost now a defense mechanism. Again, you hear me preferencing it because I get it. There, there's some people where they're going to be like, you know, again, kind of how life hacks got villainized, right? Because so many, you know, kind of rooted in privilege. And I get that, right? Right. But at the same time, to your point, that does seem to be an interesting um, converse relationship where the more money you have, the more you you kind of treat it with scarcity, Right. And so here, you know, again, you hit the certain threshold and then you're like, I- I've heard you now say 10 times you hate laundry. You know, you could get fluff and fold for like $25 a week, you know, and you're spending three hours on it. How much is your time worth? And, you know, you know, a lot of times you can sort of deconstruct it and all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, I've been silly. But, uh, you know, for others, you know, that idea again, like, I just don't, that's weird to have someone else do my laundry. Is it? Because now you have three hours on the weekend where you can go and recharge your batteries. You know, you're literally, when you hate to do something, so we'll stick with your example, deep clean, that becomes an extension of work and work you don't like to do, you know? So anyways, you know, I just think there, there are just so many opportunities, especially at the end of one level, when you you sort of, you know, again, it's just a rudimentary thing and I get it. It's not fun. You know, even the word audit just sounds awful, but it only takes a couple hours and then you don't have to do it again. Right. Then you can identify those things that are just sort of wearing you down and you can figure out how to solve them sort of one by one. And one goal at a time. And, uh, cause I'm going to summarize some things cause we're almost out of time, yeah, here, yeah, but please. I always tell my clients, I say to my clients, listen, I set goals all the time. If I can get myself to 50% compliance with this goal, I'll consider that goal a A-plus success. And they say, what are you talking about? I said, because I'm resistant to all the goals I set. I, part of me doesn't want to. Part of me wants to sit around and eat potato chips, okay? But I, but if I can get to 50% compliance, I know then I can go, okay, now what do I need to do to get me to 60%, right? Yeah. But it's got to start with 10%. It's got to start there. Uh, 10% Happier, you referenced that in the uh, book as well. So in the book, uh, there's so many wonderful little tools here. It's it's accessible for anybody. You don't have to be an academic to read this book. Um, you talk, uh, I love this. I won't, I'm going to let people, I'm going to leave some mystery here. Um, people, did they choose electric shock or sitting with their thoughts? Okay, you got to read the book to find out. It's on page 56. <laughs> you talk about uh, gratefulness. You talk about the hedonic treadmill, which we talked about before the show, which people can read about. Um, you talked about ways to transcend the ordinary and ways to really think about how you want to use your precious commodity of time on earth and how to optimize it in a way that isn't utilizing it as sort of another Western commodity in a, in a humanistic, beautiful, artful way that you can try to live your life no matter what your level of income. And that, and that I do think that is the case. I actually think people reading this who are in the gig economy and aren't making much money can actually start thinking about how they who they want to work for, where they want to work. Maybe they start their own business, all of it while coming off of this paradigm versus, and again, the people that are quite wealthy that say they need to save money or whatever, that we talked about that earlier. Rethink about what brings you joy. So I, I you know, I, I'm going to leave this to the listeners. You know, this is a very small investment which is a book that doesn't cost much money or Audible or go to your local library, The Fun Habit, 
uh, by Dr. Mike Rucker. Um, Mike, anything you want to leave the listeners with? I would just say, you know, again, you kind of pointed to it, start small. Again, if you don't, you know, an audit can sound so not fun, so don't do it. Just figure out, look back and I meant try and identify, you know, one or two things that where you would just like to swap things out or, or improve that particular, you know, um, uh, block of time and, and just play with it. And to your point, give it a couple of weeks and kind of be mindful of how you feel afterwards. And generally just that initial baby step is all that it takes. That's the, you know, not to, no pun intended, but it's been the funnest thing about this is it's, it's an initial hard sell, which I find quite fascinating, you know, but once you take that first initial baby step, then it just becomes so easy. Cause you realize like, Oh wow. It's almost like a light bulb goes on. Like, yeah, I, I should be enjoying myself a little bit. And not only for yourself, you know, some people are like, this seems, you know, again, sometimes hedonic tone, because we talk about that in psychology, gets grouped with hedonism and the two are totally separate. Like wanting to enjoy yourself a bit isn't a selfish act. It allows you to show up as a better version of yourself to others. And so I, I know we need to wrap things up, but, you know, look up social contagion. Like this isn't just for yourself. When you're having fun, you're smiling more, you're enjoying your life, that becomes infectious. So all the people that you care about are lifted up too. So you're not doing this just for yourself. You know, if you're kind of you know, grounded or anchored by guilt, like, you know, cut that off because, you know, if you are kind of living your life and, you know, through the purview of duty, then do it for the other, you know, the other people as well. Because when you're enjoying yourself, you're lifting everyone else up around you too. I love it, Mike. That was great. And um, yeah, I'm going to say just thank you so much for coming on the show. What a great summary. And yeah, until next time. Thanks, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krause. If you are enjoying it, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. As some of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, which is also a 501c3. We are endeavoring to gain funding so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to curb violence and save innocent lives by working to connect with potential offenders while they are still in the planning stages of violence. Help to de-escalate them and provide resources so that they can get appropriate preventional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up the conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website violencepreventionhotline.org that's violencepreventionhotline.org you can sign our petition share the website with your network or donate to the cause if you are looking for an EMDR International Association Consultant I am now a consultant and can provide the 20 hours needed to become EMDRIA certified I have groups online right now you can check us out at counselingsupervisorgr.com or my profile at healthforlifegr.com and send me a message if you are looking for EMDR training, check out EMDR Training Solutions. They're one of the best groups that I know. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. 
If you're in the state of Michigan, we can also provide telehealth to wherever you are. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 988 or text 741-741 and a trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your home while supporting local businesses near you. If you are a therapist, please consider joining your local counseling association. This is important to keep counseling available in all states in the United States, promoting best practices, increasing education, and um, also interweaving with other services. All right. Hope everyone has a safe and peaceful week.